Warning, the following story is graphic and violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. In the early morning hours of April 30th, 2008, the South Kitsap County Fire and Rescue received an emergency call. A house on Sydney Street was on fire. When firefighters arrived, they found a house fully engulfed. When they tamed the flames, investigators found the body of Linda Malcolm in the master bedroom. She didn't die from the fire. She was murdered. I'm George Jared, and this is Diamond State Murder Board. Welcome back to Diamond State Murder Board. I'm your host, George Jared. I'm joined in studio today, Jennifer, our good friend, and Alan Haskins, our arson expert. It's kind of a rare occasion, guys, for us to be in the same room, especially when we're recording. How are you today? It's very rare. Very rare, yeah. <laughs> Wait, have we ever it, recorded together in the same no, room? No, not like this. No, we haven't. No, we've it's recorded always been several remote. times, but it's never been face-to-face. Yeah, this is cool. And I'm not going to lie to you guys, Alan is really enjoying my face today. So, And you have a shirt on. And I, yeah. I'm, wearing, I'm wearing clothes. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> that didn't sound good. <laughs> so anybody who knows me knows that I tend to sometimes come home from the gym and not put on a, uh, a full shirt, but I've got one on today. Um, I also say that my little dog, Belle, is actually sitting in the chair behind me, so if you hear a little bark every now and then, that's what you're going to hear. So... Jen, I'll start with you. A little over a year ago, you know, you and I, um, we decided that we were going to tackle another case, and um, we had a bunch of submissions. Um, many. Many, like yeah. Like 80 or so. So we, we kind of like went through those submissions. We actually created a separate partner team to take on one of the cases that we thought we wanted to take on. But you and I kind of honed in on this, the case of Linda Malcolm. Yes. So Linda died on April 30th, 2008 in her home in Port Orchard, Washington. She was stabbed, uh, we think, what, 24 times? Looks like 24 times, front and back. Front and back. And then her killer or someone connected to her killer set the house on fire. And this all happened in the early morning hours on April 30th. So we're talking, what, like 4 o'clock in the morning-ish? Around there, 3.30 to 4, yeah. So, Jen, kind of take us through some of the reasons we decided to take on Linda's case. Well, I'll tell listeners how we came to find out about her case because it's kind of interesting, but... I work at American Military University and teach forensics, and you and I had put out kind of a bulletin through the university, I guess, saying we were taking case submissions. And so one of the students, Mike Booker, submitted Linda's case, and Linda is actually his aunt. And um, as we got closer, you know, as we were narrowing down our list of cases that we were considering and stuff, we reached out to Mike and then talked to some of Linda's siblings. And then through the course of our, what, our first or second conversation with Mike, we learned that Mike and I live about 25 minutes from each other near Colorado Springs. So it kind of felt like it all, it was falling in place. But yeah, we had many long conversations with Linda's siblings and they were on board. They've been looking for help for many, many years. Um, it's a case that didn't have a lot of media attention. That's something we wanted. Um, we didn't want a case that had already been really, really worked hard. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but we want to bring something new to the table. 
And so those were some of the reasons that we ended up picking Linda's case. And just so you guys know, a few things about Linda. She was a Navy vet. Yes. She had been in the Navy, I think, for nine years. Mm-hmm. Um, she also had worked as a paralegal. At the time of her death, I believe she was 46. Is that correct? 47. 47. So those are a few basic facts about her case. Obviously, the reason Alan is here is because there was a fire started in the mm-hmm. house. Alan, when we first approached you about this case, what were a few of the facts that stood out about the fire that was set inside Linda's house? The fact that it was pretty much set was the the big thing. And then <clears throat> when you guys give me the what information that you had, and I looked at the, I guess, the autopsy photos and then looked at the toxicology report and things like that, it just, it, it didn't add up. She didn't have any fire gases in her system. She didn't have any carbon monoxide. She, you know, and her, and her body all in all was, ha- had some damage to it, had some thermal damage to it, but it didn't, it wasn't bad. You know, I've seen much, much worse over the years, but in, when you add that into what the, like Jen said a while ago with all the stab wounds and everything, it just, it really, it was obvious that this wasn't an accidental death. And that really perked my interest in it to, to, you know, to, to look at it. And, and figure, you know, try to help figure out what happened to her. And so, through your analysis, Alan, and just so listeners can understand how the dynamic here, she was killed inside her master bedroom, which yes. was on one side of the house. According to your analysis, the fire actually started, the origin of the fire was probably about as far as you could get away from her bedroom and her where her body lay. And that's kind of interesting, isn't it, Alan? Because yeah. you, in, in all your years of experience, how many times have you seen where an arson, you know, because setting a fire is can be, I don't want to say it's common, but it does happen when, when yeah. a murder takes place. But the fact that the fire was started so far away from her body, what did that tell you? First off, you just don't see that much. Anytime somebody tries to set a fire after, or during, or whatever uh, a murder case, they're they're doing it to destroy some type of evidence, whether it's the body itself or something that they may have left behind, DNA, whatever. In this case, it just didn't happen. First, I got to tell you guys, I'm under through the Port Orchard Police Department. I had to sign an NDA, which is a non-disclosure agreement, to look at the evidence and stuff. So I can't get real deep into what is there, but. Looking at the stuff that we had prior to my NDA, it's obvious that the fire started completely in the opposite corner of where her body was. Just through my years of experience, you know, working in the fire service as long as I have and knowing about fire flow and knowing about thermodynamics, and it's obvious that the fire was started in a very odd spot for this to happen like it did. Because, like I said earlier, if you're, go- if you're going to do this, most of the time they would have started the fire in the vicinity, if not directly on top of the body to destroy the body and any evidence that's there. And this didn't happen this way. It happened basically just the opposite of that. So that would tell me that the person was either inexperienced or this was an afterthought or both. So that that's where I'm at with it right now. I mean, as far as the, I can't go, like I said, I can't go into a lot of the evidence that I've looked at from the actual fire investigation uh, right now. I can kind of expound on some of what we've talked about earlier in the pictures and things that we've got prior to me being under an NDA. But but yeah, that there's there's a lot of stuff there. And I'll just let listeners know that when we first decided to take Linda's case, I went up to Washington and I met with the well, this was a year ago, met with 
the coroner who was current at the time. He has since retired. But I met with him and he provided us the full autopsy report and all of the autopsy and crime scene photos that the coroner's office had taken in their investigation, which was hugely helpful. So we actually have dozens of crime scene photos, and that's what Alan's referring to in terms of us being able to have a pretty good grasp on what went on in this scene. And I'll just uh, briefly talk about her autopsy results. So Linda was stabbed approximately 24 times. She has wounds to her front and her back and a lot of defensive wounds to her hands and forearms and even a little bit on her upper arms. So she she was able to put up a heck of a fight. Um, she was not overpowered immediately. The coroner explained to me that four of her wounds were lethal, meaning any one of those would have caused her death without anything else. He said even with immediate medical attention, probably any of those four wounds would have led to her expiring. Um, so we actually, we have, just through the coroner, we got a really great amount of information right. mm-hmm. to work with, and that was hugely helpful. And then Linda's siblings, when they learned about her death, they flew out there and they were able to take some photographs of the property and the exterior of the house. And that really helped us too. Right. Yeah, that that helped me a lot on the mm-hmm. fire. Uh, because you can look at like windows being broke out or whatever. You can tell where a lot of the heaviest thermal damage was from the fire itself. And, and uh, one of the things that we can do as an arson investigator is you can actually take and look at the damage and look at it from least to worst. And you can kind of figure out a, what's what we call a fire flow. And you can tell what direction that the fire moved. And there's, you know, it's just, it was really the material that Jen was talking about that we had early on really showed a lot of that without even having the the stuff that that I got later on from the police department out there. So Jen, let's go let's talk about Linda's timeline for a minute. Sure. In and around the time of her murder. So she was living in this house in Port Orchard, but she was getting ready to move. Yeah. I guess the landlord was getting ready to tear the house down, and she'd lived there for a number of years. About 11 years, yeah. And so she was getting ready to move like within a week or so mm-hmm. of this event happening. So kind of take us through her timeline right around the time of her murder. Yeah, so Linda was, she was either killed late in the evening on Tuesday, April 29th, or early in the morning hours of Wednesday, April 30th. We're not positive her exact time of death, but we do know approximately when the fire was set, which was early morning hours on April 30th. But prior to that, yes, she'd been planning to move. She had signed a lease for a townhome a couple miles away from where she was currently living. Reports are that she had reserved some kind of like U-Haul truck or moving truck or something. So she was making plans to move. The day, so Tuesday, April 29th, the day basically before her murder or possibly of her murder. We know that she went to Safeway and made some sort of purchase at the Safeway grocery store. That is the last purchase on her bank record. And that was mid-afternoon, I think around 2.15 p.m. on that Tuesday afternoon. Pierce, she went home not long after that. And her best friend said she spoke with Linda for a while around 5 p.m. And from there, we are not sure. There's reports of her having another phone call Tuesday evening around 8 to 9 p.m., but we don't have those phone records, so it's hard to to confirm that. So we kind of have a large window of death. Um, I would estimate it to be from about 5 p.m., 6 p.m. that afternoon into the early morning hours of the 30th. I also believe that on that Tuesday for lunch, she stopped at the Golden Grill, which I think used to be called the Capitol Grill, and she had some lunch and a glass of wine, according to the bartender there. 
Um, so those were a couple of her last movements that we know about. So we're still working with a large window of death. We did talk to her neighbors. Uh, the neighbors that shared a driveway with her reported that they don't remember any vehicles pulling in that evening. They didn't hear anything next door. Like their houses were fairly closely situated. Um, the wife felt that she would have known if somebody drove into Linda's driveway since it was a shared driveway and the headlights would have shined through this neighbor's living room window. And the wife specifically remembers this because she had a small child that was teething, you know, and not sleeping well that night and stuff like that. So she took the child out into the living room and they were kind of sleeping on and off on the couch. So she feels fairly confident that she would have known if somebody pulled into Linda's driveway. And the houses were close enough that if Linda had maybe a few people over, had, you know, a party, a small party or something, they would have heard something. But, you know, we have to take all of that with a grain of salt. But that's what we know about the last day of her life. And Jen, uh, one of the interesting um, facts that we were able to develop in this case was the fact that the newspaper carrier had actually delivered a newspaper. It was around 3.45 a.m. is what we've been able to establish for the newspaper delivery. They were the newspaper delivery people, which was actually a married couple that would drive around and deliver the newspapers together. They were obviously interviewed pretty much right away, I think maybe even the day of the fire. And then I was able to track them down a few months ago, and their story seems very consistent. And based on those reports, they threw her newspaper under her front porch about 3.45 a.m. The wife was in the passenger seat, so her window was down, and she's like, you know, obviously if a fire is going, I would have smelled something. She goes, I didn't see anything. I looked to make sure that the paper landed where it was supposed to, because Linda requested that it be thrown onto her front porch every day. And then we went on our way. The only thing she noticed out of the ordinary was that she noticed Linda usually had a nightlight on and there was no light on in the house that particular day. But she said she did not see any cars in the driveway, didn't see anybody in the yard. It's also 3.45 in the morning, so it's right. dark. <laughs> Tough to tell. So the fire call comes in around around 4, right? 3.58. 3.58. So is called by the neighbor. So we so, a 13-minute window right. of when the fire was set. Right. The neighbor, the neighbor was woken up by the sounds of a fire explosion, crackling. She heard noises, and she got up and looked out, and this was the lady that, was, that had the teething baby, and it was well involved at that point. So there was... We know about the time frame when the fire started in that general area, so we've got that part narrowed down really, really well. Well, Alan, let me ask you, um, if they didn't notice anything at 345 and by 358, you know, the neighbor's making the call, which means it's probably a good minute to 90 seconds before the neighbor makes the call that right. this thing had to be fully engulfed. So we're looking at not 13 minutes, but more like 10, 10 and a half minutes. Right. Is it possible that this house could become engulfed that quickly? Absolutely. Uh, what people need to realize about structure fires, especially Linda's house, it was an older house. I forgot the date on it when it was built, but it was all wood frame. The inside had shiplap material inside of it with wall coverings, plus the fire package inside the house would have been the furniture and all that stuff too. And modern furniture, when it burns, it burns hot and it burns fast. So once a fire gets started in a room or in a house like that, I've got videos that I use in my classes and stuff that I teach. We've got videos out there that we've got whole houses on the ground and listen. And I'm talking big two-story houses have them on the ground in like 30 45 minutes that's that's from start to completely on the ground so yeah it, the damage that the the neighbor was seeing in the in the fire the fire load that she was seeing at that time makes perfect sense 
Alan, do you have any theories? I, I know that her bedroom wasn't completely engulfed; that it was, right. um, and her body, relatively speaking, did not receive a lot of thermal damage. No, I mean she, in her autopsy pictures, she her body doesn't really appear to be burned very much. Do you have any theories as to why that is? Is it yeah. just distance, or what, what well, is it? Distance is part of it. Uh, the other part of it is the location of where her body was found at was on the opposite side of her bed and the floor from where the fire started at so the bed kind of set in the middle of the room of course like it normally does well it was to the left of the bed or the right of the bed whichever way you're looking at it the fire it was where the door is so the fire would have come in that way and we all know heat rises so it's going to be up high when it comes into that room and it gets high and you can look at fire and heat being fluid so like if i took a glass of water or took a glass and started filling it up with water. The water goes down and hits the bottom of the glass and then spreads out. And then as it's as I'm keeping adding water to that, it fills up. Well, heat is the same way. So if I take and turn that glass upside down and start that heat, the heat's going to go up and hit the bottom of the glass and then spread out and come down. It's the same way inside of a structure. So if that fire goes in to that room or that compartment, we call it, when the heat goes into that room and starts filling it up, it works like a fluid. It starts filling up at the top and then working its way down. So with that fire being in the opposite corner of where her body was, the majority of the heat was there. Well, once the neighbor done what they did, they went over and opened the window trying to find her and opened the back door. That gave that fire some extra air in the back and caused it to pull to that part of the house. Well, her body being in the back part of that house, that heat went through the top of that of her room and got on the top. Well, that radiant heat from the top is what scorched her skin and from up high. So yeah, that would explain why she didn't have near the thermal damage that we normally would see. And then, of course, like we said, the neighbor called the fire department. The fire department got there, and South Kitsap County done a great job of putting that fire out. I mean, they they had it knocked down. They used foam on it. They foamed that fire, put it out, and had it out. And then as the fire department was going through there doing their building search and stuff like they normally do, which is part of their procedure, they find her body. And they immediately called the appropriate authorities, which would have been the Kitsap County fire marshal's office and they come in and started their investigation you know alan it's funny of course obviously jen and i are not arson experts the way you are but just the age of the house and it was relatively a small house um one thing that we were surprised about jen i think we talked about it was that the house didn't get completely right so i expected to see like bones i mean sorry not human bones i just mean the bones of a house like studs left or whatever here's this this is the crazy thing about that Older houses like that will actually withstand more than the newer houses mm-hmm. will. The newer houses like uh, the one we're in here yeah. uh, are built of lighter weight material, mm-hmm. and they burn faster. They burn hotter yeah, yeah. than, than the, the older houses. Even the older furniture, like our grandparents' furniture from yeah. back way back in the 50s and 60s, was made out of more natural fibers like cotton, wool. It didn't burn as fast. Stuff we've got now, rayon, polyester, stuff like that is going to go up quick so if you take an old house like linda had that's kind of tight and you put new furniture in there you see where i'm going Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. that's going to hold that heat in more and then as that furniture starts building and burning and causing more and more damage it's just you've got almost a perfect storm for a hot fire to to build quickly so that's why that time frame is like it is is 340 something the newspaper people go by and there's nothing there they don't see anything they Mm -hmm. don't smell anything and then 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later, we got a well-involved structure fire. So 
That's why. It's interior package, interior content is, is the big thing on it. One interesting element about this is that Linda had a waterbed in her master yeah. bedroom, which is something else you haven't seen before, right, Alan? Yeah, no. I, well, <laughs> so yeah, we're still trying to figure out what effect, the because the water was out of the mattress by the time the fire was extinguished, so it burst yeah. or somehow so the, emptied the, its water. That thing, too, would, would absorb a lot of heat because water does that. I mean, that's mm-hmm. why we use water is because it absorbs heat. But that thing would have took a lot of the heat out of that atmosphere, too. I, don't, I shouldn't say a lot. It would have took some of that heat out of the atmosphere. to. to it would have been a significant factor. It would have been a, it, I would say a very significant factor, but it would have been a factor. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. I really want Alan and his students to do an experiment. <laughs> yeah. you, you find a waterbed and put it in yeah, some... Anybody out there has got a waterbed they want to yeah, get rid of? If you're in Arkansas or near it and you have an old waterbed that <laughs> yeah. holds water and you want to donate it for an awesome, like for a scholarly cause, we would we love to some, take it off your hands. Do some testing. So, Jen, going back to the investigation, so they put the fire out, they find her body. What were the next investigative steps that were taken in the case? I mean, obviously, her body was removed by the coroner and autopsied. I don't know how many days it took Alan, but I know that the fire department sifted. Yeah, they uh, through the house that took a while. Yeah, they they done their layering. Layering. Uh, that's what's yeah. Called. They started, and this is normal. I mean, this is what all arson investigators will do: is they will start the furthest point away from where they think the fire started at. So they'll go from the least damage to the worst damage, and that's what they done. And and those guys done a great job. I mean, they went to different rooms and and went and worked their way back to where they felt was the point of origin, and took it down layer by layer by layer, looking for evidence and, and things of what might have caused it, where it started at, things like that. And we're not privy to police's whole case file. You know, there's no. certain aspects of this they've shared with us privately that we've agreed to not publicize, and that's fine. But we know, you know, they conducted interviews, and they it appears they, you know, got Linda's phone records, you know, probably seized her computer and looked through that. You know, the standard investigative steps in the beginning. I've talked to several people who were brought in and, you know, for interviews. But I don't have a lot of details on the actual specifics of what they did in those early months, but it is clear based on the emails that investigators exchanged with Linda's family that they were working the case very hard. I think a year or two into it, they kind of ran out of leads. And of course, with unfortunately, with any department, you have new crimes happening all the time. Yeah. And everybody's spread thin. And, you know, sometimes the focus shifts. And Jen, as far as like um, initial suspects in this case, um, did they have any initial suspects that we that we would want to talk about right now? Uh, I do know of at least a couple initial suspects, but I think at this point we should keep their names private just for their own privacy because nobody's been named as a suspect and um, we're not the ones who should be doing that anyways if law enforcement wants to name suspects that's on them yeah but yes they there were at least a couple people we know of that stood out to them that they looked into pretty heavily and I think without giving any specific details, Jen, you and I have gone over this a lot. This is a very, I don't want to say peculiar case, but it's its one that we've never really encountered based on mm-hmm. the suspect pool that we're aware of and the suspect pool that you and I have actually developed over the last year. And Alan, he's yes. helped develop that same pool. It's very interesting. It is. I mean, we can't rule out either gender. So um, because of 
the amount of defense Linda was able to put up, it does indicate that her killer was unable to overpower her quickly. So that could indicate somebody more her size, like a female. So we definitely have not ruled out females as a potential suspect. Um, we're staying open-minded on that. But yeah, this is an outlier case for us, I think, because usually in our cases, we have a front runner. Right. And we really don't. In this case, we have several where we've said, if any of those people was arrested, we would not be surprised. Absolutely. And that's okay. I mean, that's fine. You know, Alan, another aspect of this case, or a aspect of this case that's very interesting, you said earlier that in your experience, when someone sets an arson to try to cover up a murder, or they set an arson, or they, they, they set something ablaze, it's to eliminate evidence. And most of the time, almost all the time, that is to eliminate evidence in, on, or near the body. That didn't happen in this case. It happened in the furthest point in the house that you could possibly right. get. Now, in your experience, what does that tell you about the the arsonist specifically like why are why is the arsonist setting the fire so far away from the body well there's a couple of reasons one if this person that set the fire is the same person that killed her they may not want to see their handiwork again psychologically you know they don't want to see what they just done and that would go back deep into a psychological side of this if they knew her and had it had had a relationship with her over the years it started out as an argument and then things just escalated and ended up her getting murdered and whatever they may have knew her and just didn't want to see that you know they were they were physically upset mentally upset may not want to see her so they went and started to fire if they left and then come back started to fire in another location or they started it in a location before they left you know separate location or it could be that they left and they got to thinking about what they done think you know there could be some evidence or something in there there could be something that i left there could be you know whatever you know what did i miss what did you know did they try to clean the scene up before they left and, and they forgot something so they come back and if they got back in the house and set the fire they may not have wanted to go in that room you know so they started it you know away from that body alan are you in your experience are you aware of a situation or situations where a person has been murdered the killer leaves, and then he or she or someone else connected them comes back later to set a fire. Is that a situation you're familiar with, or is not, this unique? Not off the top of my head. This is kind of unique that, you know, if, if, it, if it happened that way. You know, I can't say one way or the other because we don't know for sure. Uh, I've got my opinion. <laughs> but... Uh, well, please share it. <laughs> <laughs> but but no, it's really not. I can't think of a whole lot that it ever happened. So this one is kind of unique. It's, it's unique on several different angles. So based on your experience, like, you know, you, you've been in this business for 30 plus years. You were a fire chief of a town that I used to live in, actually, for a long time. Um, you teach at the Fire Science Academy. This is obviously your vocation in life. So how unique, among all the cases you've ever worked, how, where would you rank this as far as uniqueness? right up at the very top wow very very top other investigators have, have looked at this too and they're like eh, that's odd very very odd a couple of things i'll point out is that they obviously weren't concerned about covering up the fact that there was a murder they weren't right. concerned about trying to hide that she was murdered so we can eliminate that as a reason for the fire 
which leaves us with, I think Alan basically mentioned it, but in my mind, two other main options. Either they're trying to cover up evidence of themselves, meaning that the, the killer knew that either they cut themselves or right. whatever, some other form of their own DNA was in that house. Or we also thought about they may have lost or dropped something during this altercation. I mean, imagine if you get home after doing this and you're missing your wallet. Obviously, your wallet being found on the scene, you're done. I mean, you're going to be the prime suspect. Right. But it's the middle of the night. It's dark. You know, you're like, I don't I don't want to go back in the house. They could have even locked the doors. I can't get back in the house. I don't know, whatever. And so they light the fire for that reason to try to burn up evidence of themselves or this could even apply to the murder weapon we don't know if they found the knife or not but you know the knife could have got dropped or misplaced in the aftermath and they didn't know where it was didn't want to turn on house lights to try to find it so well let's just set a fire and hope that the knife burns up in it at least to the point where their dna is not detectable on the knife so jen kind of give us an idea of linda malcolm like just as a person like what were her daily habits what were some things that she liked to do because you and i talk about this all the time one thing that we have to do is we have to establish you know who this person Mm -hmm. is who they're hanging out with because that's going to give us clues as to who they could possibly be hanging out with and who could possibly have committed this crime. So tell us a little bit about Alinda. Well, you said earlier she was a Navy veteran and she had, from what we can tell, three different duty stations while she was in the Navy. And then one of them had been Bremerton, which is near Port Orchard, and she really, really liked it. So it sounds like when she separated from the Navy, she came back to that area and established herself. And she worked as a paralegal for a really long time. She actually worked for the local district attorney's office until she was arrested in 2005. And she was arrested in 2005 and charged with some drug-related crimes. Um, I don't have that particular case file, but something to do with drugs. Um, Ultimately, so she lost her job at the DA's office because of that. Ultimately, the charges were dismissed, so she was never convicted. But she did, it seems like she floated around through two to three more jobs up until the point of her murder. Linda had never been married. She did not have any kids, but based on what her siblings have told us, she very much wanted both of those. It just hadn't happened. But she had had some serious boyfriends through the years. Again, it just, it didn't work out for whatever reason. Linda was very social, but I would also classify her as very private. She loved to socialize. She loved to go out and drink and sing karaoke. She, and we never ever victim shame. There is never anything a victim does that should cause their murder. So I'm just going to preface this next part with that. But Linda apparently did dabble in drugs, primarily cocaine. It sounds like socially. I don't think she was an addict. She did like to drink, like I mentioned. She loved red wine on ice. Many people have told me this story of seeing her. She had a little kiddie pool out in her front yard in the summer, and she would sit in there with a glass of wine. And I just, <laughs> I kind of just love that vision. Um, Alan does that too. <laughs> so? <laughs> But, you know, she she didn't never had a roommate in her, you know, after the Navy, from what we can tell, she always lived alone. It seems like she she was a very tidy housekeeper. She liked to cook. She liked to entertain. She liked to hang out with people. Sounds like she was kind of a night owl. Um, she was kind of promiscuous and, you know, whatever. Like, she's a single woman. She can do whatever she wants. But she had many different lovers, men and women. But honestly, I mean, we have not found really anybody who has a negative thing to say about her. I mean, everybody has really positive, funny memories about her. And so you can just tell, like, she was 
she was a light in everybody's life. That is so true because, you know, Jen, you know, you and I went to, we went to Port Orchard. Yes. Back in late April mm-hmm. of this year, you know, we want one of the things that we always do when we work on one of these cases is we always like to be in the same space mm-hmm. as the murder victim on the anniversary of their death. Yes. And so we were in Port Orchard. We actually were joined by her sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, they came with us, and it was kind of enlightening. One thing about Port Orchard, it's it's kind of an interesting town. It sits on the Puget Sound. It's like across from Bremerton. Yep. So, you know, actually one night I ended up staying in Bremerton, and it was interesting because, you know, like I got to my room. We won't talk about why George ended up in that situation. Well, this, this is how the, George ended up in this situation is he uh, has a really bad habit of not like getting a room ahead of time that he'll just drive around and hope he finds something and for the first time ever I didn't well not the first time ever but there's only one hotel in in Port Orchard and yeah. and it was booked <laughs> So I ended up having to go across. I don't, it's not even a bay. What would you call it? I mean, it's the Puget Sound. It's kind of an inlet or something. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of across the inlet. So I get over there, Alan, and I look out my window, and there's this, like this battleship out there, and it's very impressive. I'm, Beautiful there. Oh my yeah. God. yeah, it really is, but it's definitely a, mili- a military mm-hmm. town, a Navy town. Mm-hmm. Lots of boats out there. And I think, you know, we, we got a sense of, like, everybody that we talked to, like, she hung out at the Golden Girl quite a bit. Yep. And... Um, we talked to a lot of you know bartenders and friends and people like that. One of the problems with working a case like hers, though, is that because she didn't have any, to use a naval term, she didn't have any like solid anchors in her life. Like she Final didn't, buddy. yeah, like she didn't have any kids or a husband yeah. or anything like that. And she, like you said, you know, she 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 dated men and women. So there's no something we do is we create like I don't know, we create like probabilities, I guess. Yeah. And so we we throw things in that matrix, and with her. We didn't know it when we took on the case. Obviously, we didn't know all of these other details. And so that's made it, a, I don't want to say difficult because I don't like that word. It makes no. it a unique challenge. I guess that's I've a actually dis- enjoyed working on her case because so many people knew her. Yeah. Like I have a running spreadsheet of people I've talked to. Well, I, it's a wish list too because I have a few people on there that I want to talk to that I haven't found yet. But I'm like at 90. Wow. And no other spreadsheet in our other cases has been that big. So it just shows like, you know, how social she was. And But she, yeah, so she was moving and then um, she was slated to start a new job soon. I don't know the exact date that she was supposed to start. And she sent this email to her siblings basically the night before her murder. So the very early morning hours of Tuesday saying, you know, I found a new job. I'm starting part-time, but they said it's going to turn to full-time. I'm moving this weekend. This is going to be my new address. My phone number will be the same. You know, giving them an update. And it sounded really positive. Like, she said that. Something to the effect of, I feel like things are moving forward. I have a new leash on life. And so she was moving in a positive direction. And just so you guys know, we've actually been able, um, through the family and through some other means, we've actually been able to collect quite a bit of material in this case mm-hmm. as far as like some financial records, yep. things that she did. We even, I think, Jen on... Oh, and by the way, um, if anybody wants more information about this case, Break the Case podcast. Uh, podcast, Jen has done an extensive job. I'm in there a little bit and so is Alan, but Jen has really, really, really worked this case hard on that podcast. So if you're just dying for more information... Go over there and listen to Jen and Alan and a little bit of me, and we'll talk about Linda's case. Jen, at this point, what are some things that we need, like, if... 
if we have any listeners in Port Orchard, which I don't know if we do, but we don't always need them to oh, be we from do. there. <laughs> oh, no, we do. What are some things that we need the public to do now to try to help us help the Port Orchard Police Department find resolution in Linda's case? Well, one thing I keep looking for, and this is for people actually not in Port Orchard, is we're still searching for people that Linda served with in the Navy. We have not had great success in finding many of her fellow military members. So if you're listening and you served with her or you know somebody that served with her, we would love to talk to you. Um, We want to know more about her past life in the Navy and, you know, just what she was like back then and anything about her, really. I mean, the more we can learn about a victim, the better. For those in Port Orchard, if you knew Linda and we haven't talked to you yet, which seems impossible, but I'm sure it's not, (laughs) um, (laughs) please reach out to us. Even if you think you don't know anything important, again, it... The more that we can learn about our victim and their lifestyle and, you know, anything about them is very, very helpful to developing that, the, the victimology aspect of the crime. If anybody remembers someone having been cut or smelling like fire or seeing blood in their vehicle around the, or the days after April 30th, 2008 in the Port Orchard area. We would obviously very much like to hear about that. And um, I guess I'll talk about the, her real quick, her movie rentals because yes, new information that we just Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Okay. But uh, so Linda had wave broadband for her cable. And on April 30th, you know, the day that the that she's essentially, we, we basically say she was killed April 30th. It could have been the 29th, but we know the fire was set on April 30th. There was two pornographic movie rentals through her cable company. And those we know this because they're on her cable bill. I have a copy. I'm not going to give the exact timestamp, but the timestamp is several hours after she is killed and the fire is discovered. So we are really, really puzzled on how that happened. So if you had wave broadband... One thing we would like to know is how. what did you actually have to do to rent a pay-per-view movie? Was it through your remote control on your TV? Did you have to call into the cable company with a credit card or what? And then secondly, well, the cable box type would help too. Also, we would like to know if Wave Broadband build in Pacific Coast time or Eastern time. You know, some companies stick to one time zone no matter where they're located. And so figuring out what time zone was used for billing purposes would help us figure out exactly what time those movies were ordered. But either way, it's very peculiar because we know Linda didn't order them. So and if anybody has any ideas, send them to us because we might be missing something. But it's a really coincidental, peculiar aspect of the case. And although Linda had no problem watching porn, there's no pay-per-view rentals on her previous month's cable bills. So this yeah. is kind of out of the ordinary. Yeah, I think we talked about it, Jen. Either this this fact, this situation is either going to be, I hate to use the term, a complete nothing burger, or it could be very, very significant. We just, there's no way to determine what it is. Alan, you know, you've spent an enormous amount of time on this case, studying all aspects of it. What do you think... As far as a theory as to what type of accelerant was used, do you have a theory as to what possibly could have been used to start this fire? I do, but I can't really expound on it right now. <clears throat> well, being under an NDA, it's kind of hard for me to yeah. to talk about some of this stuff. But I've got a I've got an idea in my head of how how and what they used, but. 
if we can't talk about it, we can't. Yeah, yeah. you know, I no, no, it's I want th- this. I wanted this. I, oh, want th- okay. I wanted this in here. Okay. Yeah. I, okay. One of these days we'll be able to talk about it and, and tell. But um, I, I've, I've got an idea. Of course, as an investigator, we all get ideas and theories. That's how we do this. We'll come up with several different theories and prove them wrong till we find one that we can't prove wrong, and that's it. Right. You know. So. And Alan, just so we're clear, you actually have put together a report. Yes. That you gave the Port Orchard Police Department yes. detailing what your findings are. Yes. And so, I guess, Jen, one of the things that I wanted to profile or talk about just for a second is the fact that, you know, we use our crowdsourcing methods, mm-hmm. um, and we've been develop- developing them quite a bit over the last couple of years, and one of the resources we were able to develop is Allen. Yes. And so, right now, the Port Orchard Police Department has a lot more information that they didn't have to pay for, basically because we decided to take on this case, and Alan, ours, you know, he's our arson expert, but he's also our very good friend. Um, well, I mean, Alan wouldn't tell people in public he's friends with me. No, he but- wouldn't. <laughs> it's like, I George- guess I will. <laughs> uh, uh, George again. <laughs> but. And, well, that's part of this. I mean, this is this is a whole other podcast episode. But you know, you and me and Alan, like the rest of our team, like we're trying to develop this into a more formal assistance type project. Not even project, but just team where we help other law enforcement agencies too. But part of what we want it to include is experts that they don't have to pay for because Port Orchards is a tiny department and we have so many tiny police departments across the United States that can't afford an expert. But there's people out out there just like the three of us who have this passion for what we do. So let's help them. We don't, you know, we all have regular jobs, but we can help them in our spare time. It doesn't cost them anything. They get new insight that hopefully helps them narrow their suspect list or whatever it may be. It's part of our vision. Yeah, it is. So I guess at this point, probably what we're going to do in another episode or two, Jen, is we'll probably need to bring on Jeff Schaefer, who is yes. our, our knife expert, because mm-hmm. we want to kind of do a deep dive into her injuries, wounds, what type of knife could have possibly been used and stuff like that. And also, it's interesting talking to her sisters because they arrive on scene. And I tell people this all the time. Um, one of the hardest things to deal with is, or not deal with, but one of the saddest things to witness is you see family members coming into like the parking lot of a, of a sheriff's department or a police mm-hmm. department or they come on scene where someone mm-hmm. has passed and it's their loved one and they're like in a fog they don't know what to say they don't know what to do they don't know how to talk to the media they don't know what to say to the police and this case is gripping to me in that regard because talking to her sisters and no one would have a clue this doesn't happen to anybody until it happens to you hey george i just want to give listeners um, information on how they can find out more information about Linda's case. So we have, obviously we have this podcast, um, through American military university. I, you and I co-host, uh, break the case podcast. So Linda's case is the sole focus of season three. And I think we have 10 episodes out now. Um, the last one actually covers a conversation or a meeting I had with Paul holes for those who know him. You can also join, or we ask you, please join our Facebook group for Linda, Unsolved Murder of Linda Malcolm. We always welcome people to brainstorm, analyze, give us your ideas, whatever. If you're not comfortable making a public post in there, you can use that page to message us directly. Um, We do have a few videos on YouTube about Linda's case. I think they were live Zoom sessions that we did. Uh, One was with Alan, one Mm -hmm. was with Jeff. 
And um, so my YouTube is Jen Buchholz PI. That's my handle. And that YouTube channel is exclusively case-related material. So there's no other fluffer junk on there. It's all, <laughs> it's all videos that are relevant to the cases that we've worked. So um, anyways, that's what I, you know, I just want to let listeners know that they can get involved. And we really, really welcome people to join our team and help us. Um, we do have a few videos on YouTube about Linda's case. I think they were live Zoom sessions that we did. Uh, one was with Alan. One mm -hmm. was with Jeff. So my YouTube is Jen Buchholz PI. That's my handle. And that YouTube channel is exclusively case-related material. So there's no other fluffer junk on there. It's all, <laughs> it's all videos that are relevant to the cases that we've worked. So... Anyways, that's what I, you know, I just want to let listeners know that they can get involved and we really, really welcome people to join our team and help us. Jen, thank you for that. Alan, thank you so much for stopping by and chatting with us. I think we're going to borrow you for maybe another episode on a different <laughs> case here in a little bit. Jen, um, I know that I was telling somebody today, I said, I don't, I can't remember how many times you've been to Arkansas now since we first started chatting. Way too many. But it's been a lot. Um, <laughs> and oddly, I have never been to your house. Yeah, I know. I don't know how that works, but... <laughs> well, I'll tell you what you do. You find us a case in Colorado, and I will be more than happy. I'm more than happy to make the trip from Memphis to Denver, for sure, or down to Colorado Springs. I'm George Jarrett, and this is Diamond State Murder Board. Nova Sydney Castle is a young, ambitious journalist working for a magazine in New York City. A mysterious plague starts to infect parts of Asia and soon arrives in the United States. As the pandemic deepens, she becomes consumed with a decade-old murder case involving an eccentric scientist who exposes the origins of the disease. At one point, Nova has to decide, report or hide. Buy your own copy of George Jarrett's a novel wait from Amazon or wherever you buy your books. Diamond State Murder Board, written and hosted by George Jared, co-hosted and produced by Andrew Brown, music by Rush Pate, voiceover work done by me, Jessica Parker. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Diamond State MB. Download us wherever you get your podcasts.